You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I've been going everywhere and doing everything all at once, it feels like. I got put into COVID quarantine for a good chunk of this week because someone at a baby shower I threw at work had it and I actually got a little sick, as you can probably hear in my voice, but somehow still (laughs) evaded COVID, even though many of my coworkers can't say the same. I went to a movie premiere, then I woke up the next day to take my community first responder exam at work, which was a disaster simulation, and then I went to a girls' night before getting on a plane the next morning and flying to Washington, which is where I'm at now, so if it sounds a little Differently, it's because I'm in the guest bedroom and the acoustics are very different than my apartment, but this was the best I could do with my road equipment. As you can tell, I'm also a little bit sick. I can't remember if I've said that or not because I've been up for about 20 hours at this point and I'm a little delirious, not gonna lie. I'm very, very tired. But yeah, I feel like I've been awake for three days, but I gotta get this in. This is the only time I could do it. And I haven't been late with an episode yet and I don't intend that to be now. So let's let's do this. <laughs> This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got The Marvels. While it had the worst opening of all time for any Marvel film, I felt like this one was far from the worst. I think that's still the last Ant-Man that came out. There's some very cringy moments. If you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about, but I won't spoil it because I know the Marvel diehards don't like having anything spoiled for them, but I will say overall I didn't hate it. It is still a far cry from the Marvel Before Endgame though, which is just something they have not been able to figure out, which is a shame, but you know, that superhero fatigue is, is setting in. I mean, it's not setting in, it's, it's set in. So hopefully (laughs) Warner and Disney have backup plans because I don't think they can rest on the superhero laurel for much longer. And now since the strike is over, (laughs) we don't have anything else to talk about in this intro. So let's just get on to this week's topic. This week, one of the first American actors to appear in films that portrayed an idealized but more realistic than normal look into the modern teen experience, and one of few child actors to transition to adult roles for better or worse, Mickey Rooney. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while visions did appear and this week an idle theme no more yielding but to dream gentles do not reprehend if you pardon we will mend else the puck a liar call so good night unto you all give me your hands if we be friends and robin shall restore amen 
Joseph Yule Jr. was born on September 23, 1920, in Brooklyn, New York, to Nellie Carter and Joseph Yule Sr. We'll make things easy as always and just call our guy this week Mickey going forward, since we've got another junior situation here for a little bit. Mickey's mother was a chorus and burlesque performer, and his father was a Scottish-born vaudevillian who moved to the States when he was three months old. Mickey began regularly performing in his parents' vaudeville act when he was just 17 months old in a tailored tuxedo, but by then, he'd already made several stage appearances. When he'd been just 14 months old, Mickey had crawled on stage in a pair of overalls and a harmonica to the delight of the audience. Joseph Sr. was not nearly as delighted to see how much more people responded to his son versus him and actually tried to kick his son out of the act until the tour manager offered the family $5 more a week to keep Mickey in. I don't think I have to tell you what happened, do I? Money talks well enough. A month later, Mickey had his own act independent of his parents. After Joseph Sr. decided he preferred women and booze to being a husband and father, Mickey's parents separated when he was just three or four years old, depending on the source. Mickey and his mother moved to Kansas City to live with her sister. Soon after arriving, Nellie saw an ad in the newspaper that a producer out in Hollywood was casting kids for a series called Our Gang, and she thought Mickey would be a perfect candidate. They went out there. He auditioned, the producers agreed with her assessment, and Mickey was offered a role in our gang for $5 per week. But Nellie turned it down. The other kids on the show were getting paid five times more than Mickey, and she wasn't going to let her son be anybody's chump. She and Mickey returned to Kansas City, but they couldn't stay away from Hollywood for long and were back within a year. Mickey made his first film appearance at age six in 1926 in the short Not To Be Trusted, and several small parts followed. While trying to make her son a star, Nellie came across an advertisement or was tipped off by an agent, again depending on the source, that a studio was looking for a child to play the role of Mickey McGuire in several short films based on the comic Toonerville Folks. Mickey auditioned for and ultimately got the role. He became the cigar-smoking tough guy Mickey McGuire for 78 of the films, starting with Mickey's Circus in 1927, which was also his first starring role. Mickey became so synonymous with the character that his mother wanted to change his name legally to Mickey McGuire, but decided just to keep that first name as the author of the comic wasn't super keen on Mickey taking on the entire name. Instead, the last name Rooney was chosen because Nellie had a dancer friend named Rooney, and she liked that name. That was as deep as they went with the last name. Between playing Mickey, bit parts followed in major motion pictures with major motion picture stars, and during this time, real Mickey became a professional ping pong player. This interest would unlock a new level of fame for him, but not in a way you'd think. While competing in a ping pong match and hamming it up for the audience while doing so, one of the refs, producer David Oselznik, who I feel like is coming up a ton this these last couple of months, took notice of the boy and tried to secure him a contract at MGM where he worked at the time. Louis B. Mayer was his father-in-law. Mayer knew of Mickey, but didn't want him, but Selznick had a role written for him in his film, Manhattan Melodrama, from 1934. The film initially opened tepidly, but became known infamously as the film Gangster John Dillinger Saw before being shot dead by the feds. After that little factoid reached the papers, audiences swarmed to see the film. 
Mickey was a big takeaway from that film and people really liked him. And this basically secured him an MGM contract. At age 14, Mickey played the role of the mischievous Puck while being loaned out to Warner Brothers in an all-star adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream in 1935. He stole the show out from some of the biggest adult stars of the day, and when he returned to MGM, the roles that he was given at his home studio reflected that. This included projects like Little Lord Fauntleroy from 1936, which also starred another popular child actor of the day, Freddie Bartholomew. Up to this point, Mickey was more of a character actor more than anything else. He was known more by his face, but he didn't really have a name to go with it in in the American household. But that was about to change. In 1937, Mickey was selected to portray Andy Hardy in the BMGM film A Family Affair, which was only supposed to be just a one-off project. Mickey provided the comic relief in the film as the son of Judge James K. Hardy, played by Lionel Barrymore. The film was an unexpected success and led to 13 more Andy Hardy films between 1937 and 1946, with a final one releasing in 1958. MGM made the latter Hardy films to appeal to all American families, quote-unquote. Mickey's Andy was portrayed as a typical American teenager of the era, or an idealized one at least, and he accidentally became the main star of the films in the process. Some critics would describe these films as, quote, sweet, overly idealized, and pretty much interchangeable, but their success was rooted in this nearly picture-perfect American family that was portrayed in the films, and Mickey became the poster boy for the red-blooded American boy. Ironically enough, these films started coming out at the same time Jackie Coogan was suing his mother and stepfather, and Mickey in his personal life would prove to be, in many ways, quite the opposite of Mr. Andy Hardy. In 1937, Mickey made his first film opposite Judy Garland with Thoroughbreds Don't Cry. On top of becoming close, possibly even best friends, again depends on the source, they also became a popular song and dance duo. Along with three of the Andy Hardy films where Garland played Andy's love interest and later best friend, they appeared together in a string of successful musicals including Babes in Arms from 1939. For this performance, Mickey, now 19, became the second youngest Best Actor nominee ever, a record he holds to this day. Not to be typecast as a sweet, naive boy, we are talking about a Brooklyn boy here, remember. Mickey's breakthrough role as a dramatic actor came in 1938's Boys Town, for which he got a Juvenile Academy Award in 1939 for, quote, significant contribution in bringing to the screen the spirit and personification of youth. In Boys Town, Mickey played a mean, tough punk, a far cry from the sweet, all-American, saccharine Andy Hardy. The film also gave Mickey an air of legitimacy as an actor in the process. With the success of Andy Hardy amongst his other work, Mickey Rooney became the biggest box office draw in the United States starting in 1939, which is impressive given the films that came out that year. We're talking Gone with the Wind, freaking Wizard of Oz. I guess 1939 is considered widely to be the best year in all of American film, and Mickey Rooney was at the top of that pile, but he was also the biggest earner in 1940 and 1941. Mickey Rooney was the most famous teenager in town, and from the sounds of it, his demeanor reflected that, and not necessarily in a good way. 
Despite the fact that Mickey was not getting paid at the level of his adult counterparts, he was living large. He had a 12-room mansion, a fancy car, basically anything a young man could possibly want at this time. He also had some lovely vices, including chasing the ladies, partying too hard, drinking too hard, gambling, really liked to bet on the horses. And Mayer was not a fan of most of this behavior because this was not Andy Hardy behavior. But Mickey didn't think it should matter what he did in his personal life since he still showed up to set on time every day and gave 100% for every scene he was in. Despite this fact, Mickey was assigned a publicity manager by MGM who was tasked with following him around, but Mickey would give him the slip on the wreck. Popular Mickey films during his reign as box office king included Huckleberry Finn and Young Tom Edison, 1939 and 1940 respectively, the latter of which was promoted on a nationwide train tour by Mickey and Louis B. Mayer himself. They promoted the film at many significant Edison historical sites. Also around this time, Mickey met his first wife while dressed as Carmen Miranda while shooting the film Babes on Broadway from 1941. She only agreed to go on a date with him after an MGM exec mentioned that it might be a good idea for her to do it for her career. Ava Gardner agreed, and the two were engaged five months into dating. Mickey had asked her to marry him after every single date they'd gone on, and she finally said yes on Christmas Eve, which also happened to be her birthday. She was 19, he was 21, and they married three weeks later. Not long after, after a huge fight, which started over him getting jealous seeing her dancing with someone else, she declared, quote, I'm tired of living with a goddamn derogatory term for a little person, and stormed out. Mickey was like 5'1", 5'2", and Ava was 5'6", for whatever that's worth. While he knew deep down that she hadn't really wanted to marry him, he was still hurt. The studio tried to interfere and they did reconcile briefly and she got a career boost as a result, but the marriage ended for good after just nine months. Mickey threw himself into his work, garnering critical acclaim in films like The Human Comedy from 1943, which earned him another Oscar nomination, and National Velvet from 1945, in which he played a former jockey. In 1944, Mickey enlisted in the army during World War II and served for 21 months. He spent part of the time as a radio personality on the American Forces Network and was awarded the Bronze Star Medal for entertaining troops in combat zones. Just before he deployed, however, while he'd been promoting National Velvet, he'd met wife number two, Betty Jane Phillips, a 17-year-old beauty queen. He proposed to her the week they met and were married right before he shipped off to war. She found out she was pregnant with his child while he was on deployment, and he didn't meet his first child, a son named Mickey Rooney Jr., until he was two and a half years old. The couple stayed together long enough to conceive another child, but Phillips left him while still pregnant, returning to Alabama. They divorced in 1949. Mickey returned to MGM after the war, but his career declined after his return to civilian life. It turned out the America he'd left to fight for was not the one he had returned to. He was also now a grown man of 26 who had been married twice, had two sons, and logistically speaking, could no longer play the role of a teenager convincingly. He was only, like I said, 5'1", 5'2", and not necessarily conventionally attractive, so he wasn't a natural choice to play an adult leading man either, at least not one for that era. 
The studio didn't know what to do with him and tried to keep Mickey playing teenage boys, but audiences no longer flocked to see him. He didn't look like a teenager. He looked like a man in his 20s, so a modern day man in his mid 30s. Mickey ultimately left MGM in 1948, hoping to make more money to support his two ex-wives and his gambling habits. He didn't really find what he was looking for. He did get some work, including briefly starring in a CBS radio series called Shorty Bell in the summer of 1948, and also reprised his role of Andy Hardy with most of the original cast in a syndicated radio version of The Hardy Family in 1949 and 1950. Mickey married a third time in 1949 to actress Martha Vickers, about 10 seconds after his second marriage officially ended. Mickey's social life was a lot for her, and she was forced to slow down when she got pregnant. They ultimately got divorced in 1951. Mickey's personal life was now affecting his professional work, and he considered quitting acting altogether as he wasn't getting the roles he wanted to fill fulfilled. By the early 1950s, he was a fading star by all accounts, which of course was the case for many former film stars at this time because of TV. During the 1960s and 70s, he would also often be the subject of comedians' jokes over his alleged inability to stay married for longer than about 10 minutes. While out golfing, a habit he had thrown himself into as the acting work dried up and his personal life was on fire, Mickey met Elaine Menken, another former beauty queen turned model. They married shortly after they'd started dating, and yes, he asked her to marry him every time they were together. He clearly learned his lesson. They married in 1952 and divorced in 1958. She found his lifestyle and finances too tumultuous and divorced when she found out he had a new girlfriend. On the professional side, Mickey did some TV work, frequently calling back to his vaudeville origins to appear on variety shows. In 1954, he briefly had his own series, Hey Mulligan, in which he played an NBC page, basically like a well-dressed intern. The show ran for 32 episodes from August 1954 to June 1955 and was one of several television shows that supplemented his life between film roles, which he was getting paid far less to do by this point. But the roles did start to improve, at least in quality, toward the end of the decade. He appeared in 1956's The Bold and the Brave, which got him another Oscar nomination. In 1957, he appeared in the live TV play The Comedian, which was called his best performance to date. This performance led to the green light of the final Andy Hardy film, which bombed at the box office as audiences couldn't separate the pretend Andy Hardy from his portrayer and his many marriages and vices, which were very public knowledge by this point. Speaking of personal life, Mickey married wife number five when she was five months pregnant. They had to wait till marriage number four was officially finalized. Her name was Barbara Ann Thomason, and she was another former beauty queen. He clearly had a type. Four children came out of this marriage between 1958 and 1964. All the while, Mickey continued working, including in 1963's It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, after, in 1961, infamously portraying a Japanese man, Mr. Yanioshi, in Breakfast at Tiffany's. His performance has been criticized by many in subsequent years as the racist, and Mickey would later say himself that he would not have taken the role on had he known that it would offend people. Despite this awareness, Mickey's professionalism had tanked by this point. His drinking was getting him into all kinds of trouble, which included getting kicked off of a talk show for being visibly sloshed. He was also hella cheating on his wife. In 1966, 
While Mickey was working on the film Ambush Bay in the Philippines, Barbara was found dead in her bed. She'd been having her own string of affairs, and her lover, Milos Milos, who was one of Rooney's friends, was found dead beside her. Detectives ruled it a murder-suicide, which was carried out with Mickey's own gun. Milos had found out that she and Mickey had reconciled while Mickey was hospitalized for basically depression of the news of their affair, and Milos had carried out the murder in a jealous rage before turning the gun on himself. Mickey's mother then died 10 days later. In a drug and alcohol-induced haze to deal with the dual losses, Barbara's best friend stepped in to help Mickey with the four children who had just lost their mother. And you probably know where this is going. Yep, he married her too. Her name was Marge Lane, and that marriage lasted a mere 100 days. Mickey married Carolyn Hockett two years later, but his finances caused deep issues within the marriage, and they divorced in 1975. By this point, Mickey was focusing more on harebrained business schemes that he would never get off the ground because he had no carry through instead of actually acting, which, you know, was leading to the financial problems amongst the vices he never gave up. He was thrown a lifeline by a buddy who couldn't take a role in the form of a play called Three Goats and a Blanket. Opening night, only 15 people attended, but word of mouth saved the play, and Mickey became the king of dinner theater as a result. His new agent also transformed him into a working actor instead of a movie star, which gave Nikki far more stable years than he would have had without her. He also became a big television personality like Hollywood Squares, stuff like that. In 1978, Mickey was introduced to country western singer Jan Chamberlain by his eldest son. She became Mrs. Rooney number eight, and this marriage lasted longer than the previous seven combined. The two married in 1978, and despite separating in 2012, they were married until the end of Mickey's life. Francis Ford Coppola cast Mickey as a jockey in the 1979 film Black Stallion. It would be the fourth time Mickey played a jockey, and the film garnered excellent reviews and a healthy box office for that era. It also gave Mickey a new wave of recognition, along with another Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor for his trouble. Mickey followed that up with a successful Broadway run with Sugar Babies for three years starting in 1979. He also appeared on TV even further, winning an Emmy for his work on the TV movie Bill in which he played a mentally delayed individual. In 1983, Mickey was given a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Academy Awards for his seven-decade career at that point. He published his memoir in 1991, but continued working for another 20 years. Mickey's final years, while he did appear in major studio films like Night at the Museum, were plagued with financial woe and other issues. He and his wife Jan toured the U.S. from 2005 to 2011 in a musical review called Let's Put on a Show that Vanity Fair called, quote, a homespun affair full of dog-eared jokes. After nearly a century devoted to entertaining the masses, Mickey Rooney died in 2014 at the age of 93 on August 6, 2014 of natural causes. His eight surviving children said in a statement that they had been barred from seeing their father during his final years, and his death also uncovered a lot of other not-so-great things that were happening in Mickey's final years. At the time of his death, Vanity Fair declared Mickey, quote, the original Hollywood train wreck. Despite earning millions of dollars during his career, he had to file for bankruptcy in 1962 due to mismanagement of his finances. 
In his twilight years, Mickey had given control over his finances to his stepson, who had funneled his earnings to pay for his own lavish lifestyle. Mickey's millions in earning at the time of his death was estimated at just $18,000. He also died owing medical bills and back taxes, and contributions ended up being solicited from the public to fund his funeral, basically. An October 2015 article in The Hollywood Reporter claimed that Mickey was frequently abused and financially depleted by family members, not just his stepson, in his final years. The article went on to state that, quote, one of the biggest stars of all time, who remained aloft longer than anyone in Hollywood history, was in the end brought down by those closest to him. He died humiliated and betrayed, nearly broke and often broken. The article also claimed that Mickey had a series of mental issues that had gone undiagnosed, leading to several instances of his behavior over the years. Despite his tragic final years, I think we'd all in the end of our lives like to be remembered for the times that we were at the top. So let's leave this episode picturing Mickey Rooney as he was back in 1940, forever young and the biggest movie star in Hollywood. Excuse me for running away, Betsy. All right. You see, I can't afford to fight with Cynthia. She a girl? No, but I gotta be nice to her till after Christmas. Are you expecting her to give you some sort of special present? No, but this is a secret. I bought a car. That is, I paid 12 bucks down on it, and I promised to pay eight more by the 23rd. That's why I gotta be nice to Cynthia. Well, I don't get it. Well, you see, Cynthia's really BZ Anderson's girl, and he's away, and he promised to pay me eight bucks to keep all the other fellas away from her. Now, she's just an installment on a car to me. <laughs> Polly Benedict's my real girl, but she's away, too. Oh. Sometimes I wonder if it's all worthwhile. And that's going to do it for this week. I need some Sudafed. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the Buy Me a Coffee, where you buy me a coffee. It's going on 10 o'clock at night. There's no coffee tonight. I've also got merch. Check it out, the link in the show notes. No episode next week as it's Thanksgiving in the States, but the week after that, I'll be back with a requested special on the history of film preservation. Very excited to dive into that one. Very glad I have two weeks to to pull everything together, even though I've already started pulling some stuff. So you are not going to want to miss that one. It's way more interesting than I thought based on some preliminary reading. But for right now, thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Thank mm-hmm. you.